I'm Susanna Marsden, and welcome to Job Shadowing HE, the podcast that delves into the roles of people working in higher education. Each episode hears from guests about what's involved in their role, the career path that led to it, and tips on how to get in and get on in these jobs. My guest in this episode is Alison Benson, Strategic Planning Manager for Governance at the University of Leicester. Alison has worked in higher education for nearly eight years and is passionate about the role governance can play in helping universities to work well. Alongside her role at Leicester, she's the joint coordinator of a sector special interest group that draws together colleagues working in higher education governance and in her spare time, she's studying part-time for an MBA. So Alison, welcome to Job Shadowing HE. Thank you for letting me spend some time with you today. Let's start a conversation with an overview of what you do. Your job title is Strategic Planning Manager Governance, and your main responsibility is to manage the university's top level corporate and academic governance. That sounds like quite a broad task. Can you tell us a bit more about what it involves? Absolutely. And thank you for having me as well. And it's a classic HE job title, isn't it? It's a bit of a mouthful. Nobody's quite sure what it means. Um, But in a nutshell, I manage anything to do with the university's governance frameworks, and that's corporate or academic. And that's distinct from the day-to-day management and running of the organisation. And in practice, what that means is my team and I look after our governing body, which is the University Council at Leicester, And the majority of its standing committees, so spanning finance, audit, people functions into areas as diverse as honorary degrees, investments, health and safety. Um, And as well as that, we look after the University Senate, which is the highest academic decision making group. Um, But we also carry out governance improvement initiatives. So we might look at effectiveness reviews or induction and development for members. And my team is also responsible for some compliance and regulation functions. So that's primarily with the uh, OFS, Office for Students Obligations, things like good governance codes from the CUC. So it's quite wide ranging and quite varied and quite under the bonnet if you don't know much about it. And our overarching function really is to make sure that the university makes good decisions. So I describe that as decisions at the right time with the right people in the room supported by the right information but governance itself is fundamentally about checks and balances on management exercising their responsibilities I like to think we act as the institutional conscience some of us might call it the institutional police I dislike that (laughs) it's more of a conscience thing and what should we be doing as well as what what must we be doing if you like and every, every organisation designs itself differently. Where does your post report within the institution? It's an interesting one. And it, you're right, it, it sits in many different places across the sector. So for us, we sit in the planning, legal and governance services division, um, which co- encompasses strategic planning, assurance, risk, information assurance, data analysis as well. We report through a director there, and into the registrar and secretary. So that 
we ultimately end up in the same place as a lot of other institutions do, but that, that underpinning structure is different. And the registrar and secretary then is the formal secretary to those overarching bodies and is ultimately responsible for governance. So your career path so far is really interesting because you didn't start in higher education. Your LinkedIn profile says that your first job was the PA to the chief curator at the Tate Modern in London. And now several years on, you're managing the governance of a large university. So I'm curious to know, across that time, what have been the interests and skills you've discovered about yourself? And how have they taken you from that first job to where you are now? Yes, it has been an interesting ride along the way to get to get to here. Um, and I did, back in 2006, start out at the Tate Gallery. Um, and I worked there for a number of years in a number of different roles. And that's what I'd say is quite a useful thing to take away if you're looking at the HE sector or any other big big sector, you can move around and move sideways and learn different things and use what you've done in the previous role to move into something else. So I started out as a PA. I'm an organised person who plans things by default. That was very useful. And then I moved into a role in external relations. So that was a bit of an advocacy-focused role. Um, half of it was about relationship management and supporting the institution to develop that practice with its other staff. And half of it was exhibition opening events, which were definitely loads of fun back in the day. Um, that role was situated in the director's office. So then I moved into a governance and policy manager role when that came up. Um, and I was able to use the institutional knowledge that I already had and some of the relationships I'd already built, though not all, uh, to move into that role where I was then looking after the board of trustees and thinking about our relationship with government um, and the wider community. And after that, I worked for a group of academy schools. I was their sole governance manager. There were 18 schools at the time. That was an interesting thing to take on. And then from there, moved into higher education in 2016, first at the Open University and now at Leicester. And I think if when I look back over it, I think very much that it's been about transferable skills and it's not always obvious at the time. So what I said before about moving around internally, it also applies moving externally. You can look back and say, well, I did this and it was very specialised and in one corner of an institution, but actually I have X, Y and Z transferable skills that work anywhere. So I mentioned organising things, planning schedules, you will always need that skill working in a governance management role. You're working with multiple committees, busy senior managers, external lay members who are giving their time for free in most cases. And I've also found that project management skills have been really useful to put around that. It's, it's on a very micro scale in some instances, but it, it still applies. And the people and relationship management aspects have been really, really valuable. So moving from that advocacy-focused role in Tate and taking those skills and saying institutionally, how do we work with people? And I see that playing out now when I work with our council members. Um, we're thinking, you know, actually, so-and-so has a background in healthcare. How can we use them more widely as an institution? How are they going to be an ambassador for us? But also, what are they bringing to the table in the council room as a trust, legal trustee, a member of our governing body, and someone who's providing that kind of critical friend role 
in the room. So yeah, I think it, for me, it's definitely all about the transferable skills. Where I am now, the role is moving much more into kind of leader of the function role. That's been a really interesting learning curve. So moving from that day-to-day doing towards focusing on managing others and, and achieving their potential through that. But that background enables you to do that from a perspective of, of informed knowledge, I suppose. You work part-time now and you've worked part-time as you've progressed your career in the roles that you've just outlined there. Tell us a bit more about the approach that you take to your work-life balance. I have two children who are aged nine and six. I also have a long-term health condition. So it's important to me to have balance and kind of that pacing across the week. It is difficult to be a part-time person in a largely full-time culture and especially as we look at sort of the the always-on culture that, that we tend to have nowadays. But for me, flexibility has really been the key thing and the focus, certainly in my area as it is now in Leicester, the focus is on outcomes, it's on getting the job done, it's not on you were here 10 minutes more yesterday you know, you should go home now it's, and, and vice versa. It's about reciprocal trust. And actually yesterday I was having this conversation with one of my team in the context of their yearly performance review. And I was pleased to hear that they valued that as the approach that we had in the team. And it's do as you would be done by. But I don't have the magic answer. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like very important things happen when I'm not around. And it's difficult when you... When you're ambitious, you want to be part of things, you want to keep track of things. But that learning curve, becoming more leadership and management focused has been a major part of of dealing with that, actually. Um, I've been fortunate to be able to largely build the team that I manage. And that that sort of approach of reciprocal trust has then meant that, you know, it's not worrying me when someone else is filling it filling in for me and it's happening in a cyclical sort of way it will come around and I will do that for someone else and it's about learning that in stepping into that kind of management leadership role the value you provide is in developing your team so they can carry on without you and that's a very strange thing to describe uh, but actually it's a mindset change you flip it around and you say I can not be in on a Friday because I have led and managed my team and they are comfortable and I am confident that this can carry on in my absence. Um, Hybrid working massively helps. I am a huge advocate for it. Um, And in fact, I'm because I just don't have enough on, I'm doing an MBA alongside work as well through Leicester. And I chose to do some research in hybrid working from a recent module because I am, I'm just really convinced that it's, it's got so much potential, but we've got to get it right. And it's different for different areas, isn't it? It does take some adjustment. We have to le- learn to do different work in different places. Um, when I go in once a week on a Tuesday, I spend nearly all day talking to people. That's very different from how it used to be. It requires a different energy and a different approach. Um, and then on a day when I'm at home... I'll be largely writing and that's a different energy and a different approach and a different approach to the number of biscuits I ate during the day, never mind anything else. 
Um, but we feel the benefit is the team both ways around. We get that focus time and we get that interaction time. And it's just about learning to apply them correctly. In conjunction with working part time, it's pretty good. But you have to have boundaries. And that's my golden nugget of advice. The best piece of advice I ever got in my career was never apologise, never explain. Um, you shouldn't be afraid to challenge um, anything that sort of you're being asked to do that that goes across those boundaries, really, and do so because you believe in your own worth. It's hard. I'm not saying it's it's easy. You shouldn't apologise for having limits, whatever they are. Um, when you try and book time with the senior manager, you do not get a very long explanation as to why they can't do two o'clock on a particular day. Channel that. I never say, I'm going to pick my children up. Sorry, I can't do three o'clock. I say, three o'clock doesn't work for me. Can we do two o'clock tomorrow? Um, and the boundary thing, regardless of whether you work part-time or whether you're just thinking about your work-life balance more generally as a full-time worker or indeed just trying to get through your day with a bit more structure, it's useful. If you want to say, you know, from two o'clock to four o'clock every day, I'm writing a report, stick to it, put the structures in place to make it happen, set up your alerts, your notifications, etc., etc. Turn off the email on your phone. <laughs> or set it to not go off in the hours that you're not working, whatever that is, that's the best thing you can do for yourself. And how do you balance that, those boundaries that you've talked about there with, I guess, inevitable life in a higher education institution where things come along that you didn't anticipate? And how do you balance those two things? That's a very good question. And for me, it's about the flexibility back. So... I'm fortunate, both my children are at school now, so on my non-working day, I don't have that kind of set childcare issue that, that others may have with younger children. I can be flexible, and in fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going in on a Friday because we couldn't get any other time to do something, but I'm having the Monday off instead. So that, that give and take is important, and it's also important, certainly for me as the, the manager of the team, to know that it's my job to kind of support and protect my staff as well. So I would rather step in and take that than, than ask one of my already overstretched team members to do that. Um, but you can't, you cannot plan for everything and you can't anticipate every problem. Talk to your manager, talk to your team. There's usually a way to be fine through and you're not an island governance management is probably one of the most behind the scenes functions in a higher education setting you said earlier about it being very much under the bonnet and I guess sometimes governance can be seen by colleagues as a blocker rather than an enabler so what is it that you do in your professional role to help governance have that enabling purpose? Oh, this is the million dollar question, isn't it? Um, yeah, we, we have a bad rep sometimes. And it, it, it's the fate of any kind of administrative function that is largely unnoticed and sort of beavers away in the background and makes things happen. And you notice when it goes wrong, but you don't necessarily see the 85% of the time when it's 
carrying along perfectly. My approach, I've, I've got a real kind of be in my bonus about this. And I think we need to be governance functions in general in any institution within HA or otherwise need to be a professional strategic function. Um, so my way of planning and developing how we work as a team supports that really. So over the past couple of years, so I've been at Leicester for four years now um, and was fortunate enough to recruit sort of my, my officers a couple of years ago. Over that time, the focus of our work has shifted and I've spent a lot of time and energy thinking, you know, what would those roles in the team do? How would we go about doing things differently? I've described it internally and externally as a step change, but also an inversion of how that traditional model of kind of committee servicing has worked in institutions like ours. So I went to talk to our executive board about what my plans were. I did that with the support of our registrar and secretary and said, you know, we are inverting the model. We are not going to be a central secretariat in that old model. We're a governance function and we're turning it upside down in the sense that we want to have areas of work and the committee work we do supports those strands. So I've done all the plans, our work, allocations etc with that in mind and we communicate that to the senior managers that we work with you know not in a great amount of detail <laughs> kind of need to know basis but we're trying to be active partners and facilitators in those decision making processes on a very basic level we're working more closely with key internal stakeholders so it's not an easy task it's partly about managing those relationships upward and also sideways and building that that network internally and externally to a certain extent but also more fundamental quick win type things so we revamped our internal website we're working on another strand of that this year there's never anything that crosses our desks that couldn't be improved by working more closely with people though and understanding where we can support and that's that's the ethos that that we try to maintain I think. And, and sort of reflecting on some of what you've said there, is there particular evidence that you use to know if your governance is working effectively? We have a lot of conversations, that sort of yearly round that comes around, what are our KPIs? It is a really difficult thing to measure because you can see when it fails, you can see when those catastrophes happen. And you think, you know, in the news, governance failures where you've seen that, they're obvious. Measuring how it's going well is tricky in terms of quantifying, slightly easier in terms of qualitative evidence. So on the one hand, we're looking at things like the CUC HE code of governance and saying how do we comply with that and how do we go beyond it in most instances and the same for particular committees where they issue guidance. We're also looking at guidance from other sectors so we might look at relevant parts of Financial Reporting Council or um, Chartered Governance Institute and so on where it's relevant and it, it isn't always directly applicable and we analyse that sort of on a yearly basis and think, okay, how are we measuring up? But that, I would describe that as the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law. The effectiveness reviews that I mentioned before, so I'm just, just about to embark on one for our Senate uh, this year as part of a cyclical review process that we do. We're also just about to embed um, a more systematic 
review framework internally for our committees. You're looking at everything. You're looking at sort of what what does that committee fundamentally do, um, and that's usually found in its terms of reference across the year. What have they done? Um, does it match up? Are there gaps? Are there things that are too much? Was too much of the time spent on number one and not enough on number six? And um, those kinds of things. That desktop work is important. Have you got the right people? The right members? whether that's internal or external. Have you looked at something like a skills matrix and you've worked out that, you know, you need two people in finance, but you've only got one, for example. Those are the things that you can measure. You're not putting a a specific number against them necessarily, but the things that you can measure. But I would say it's the quality of the relationships that really matters. Do your chair, your vice chancellor, and your secretary, for example, do they get on? Do they meet regularly? Do they know what the other might think about something? Are they communicating well? Um, and the same goes for any kind of committee or group that you have. You can very often sit in a governing body meeting or a committee meeting as an experienced governance person or just a person who's watching sometimes and uh, take the temperature of that room. Is the culture open? Are the governors asking probing questions, but in an atmosphere of trust? And that's key. Um, and where you might particularly find that is in an audit committee. So it's a real, my colleagues would describe it as a real grilling. Um, but what they are driving at is we're here to help you. We're here to understand what the challenges are. We're a critical friend. You can be open with us. We're not going to criticise you for no reason. We're going to suggest ways forward um, and we're going to say if we think that what you've done is not adequate and that is what you should expect and what we should get. But there's a lot that goes behind that. You've got to be prepared to induct and develop your members as well as recruit people who have those skills in the first place and that's an ongoing process as well. And I guess in summary, you you can have the framework and the terms of reference and and the membership, but as you've just been talking about there, the the human interaction and the skills that people bring, it is all about people and it's a shared model, isn't it? It's not just because you're the governance manager doesn't mean that you can create this effective governance. It's about how it works across the whole organisation with all of the people involved in that. At the end of the day, we can write down all this information and we have it all written down, but bringing it to life is, is where that really happens. Take us through an example week. Where's your focus? What are you working on? Who are you talking with? I would love to have a typical week. Firstly and foremostly, I'm making time to talk with my team. Uh, So we spend one day a week in the office at the moment, one core day, and we're in and out for other things. So I will structure that day around weekly team meeting, weekly one-to-ones with my direct reports, which is most of my small team. Um, And... We use that time for connecting and communicating. I'm kickstarting a piece of work to look at succession planning for our council and committee members. And that is, it's an ongoing process, but on this particular front, it's working from scratch on a structure and an approach we're going to take. We have lots of movement around the system in the next 18 months and we need to be strategic. I'm liaising with external consultants on our 
Senate effectiveness review. That's, we do that every three to four years uh, per good guidance. I'm leading on the work internally and using external consultants as a sounding board and for input. I'm meeting internal colleagues about our university court meeting. So that's a largely ceremonial governance body we have at Leicester, which is uh, composed of uh, the wider university community, really, and, and a lot of local stakeholders in that. I'm looking at proposals for how we can improve our honorary degrees awards further. I'm thinking about how we're going to measure and analyse the diversity of our governance committees as part of a commitment in our EDI strategy. Looking, as I do every week, at our business cycles and schedules for our high-level bodies and making sure we're, we're on top of things. Resource bank for our council and committee members. And that's just on the four days a week I do work. <laughs> I meant it when I said it was varied and interesting. <laughs> Standing back from that day-to-day -day role at Leicester and looking more broadly at the sector, you've jointly set up a sector-wide governance special interest group as part of the Association of Higher Education Professionals. And from what I've read, as part of that work, you're talking with other sector bodies like Advance HE and the Association of Heads of University Administration on how career pathways and governance can be better defined and supported. Can you tell us a bit more about your motivation behind that work and, and also the type of skills you'd like to support colleagues to develop? This is a really interesting strand of what I'm doing with my professional life at the moment. So about four years ago, um, with a colleague from elsewhere in the sector, we proposed to what was then the AUA, setting up a network for governance professionals, because we, we almost couldn't believe that there wasn't anything uh, specific about governance at that time. And really that came from a desire to kind of reach out to others in a similar position and also acknowledging that within, really within institutions, governance areas can be quite small and they can be isolated. And it so happened that somebody else had had exactly the same idea at exactly the same time and applied to the AUA. So we merged our proposals and, and the network was born in late 2019. We've got, I think, around 200 members now in that network. So it's been really popular. So there was obviously an appetite um, for it. And it came really from thinking there's been such a huge amount of change in the time even that I've worked in HE. I mean, I, I joined the OU back in February 2016. Brexit hadn't happened. Um, the OFS didn't exist change is the only constant and actually governance is supposed to keep keep the wheels on the truck so how do we navigate that changing world so I coordinate the what is now the special interest group within AHEP um, with my colleague Kath Wass who is at Bradford and she works in a governance and projects role there and we periodically have thematic events we sometimes do a general sort of turn up and tell us how life is type chat <laughs> um, just to share experiences and share those common challenges that we have but we have had thematic events on things like uh, you know, the new audit code that, that CUC brought out in 2020 how are we going to apply that let's look at a model and see see if it works it's been a useful place to share information um, we're in the process of organizing some events for 2024 hopefully going to look at some comparative governance with colleagues out in Australia, actually. 
and also looking at the challenges that AI might bring to how we think about governance. Um, and then within that, we got asked to take part in this wider group uh, within the sector. And again, it was kind of that confluence of different groups thinking about the same question at the same time. So AHUA, Advance HE and CUC were all kind of going, oh, maybe we need to do something about, about governance careers. Strategic planners have their own organisation. Um, you know, finance has their own zone, et cetera, et cetera. But governance doesn't seem to have anything. So essentially what's happened is a project team's been formed and we are thinking, uh, so we, Kath and I go as AHEP representatives along with someone from AHEP. The general overarching idea is to look at whether or not we need a structured pathway for HE governance careers. And there's recognition there that we were the first to set something up and get get the momentum going. And that's been really, really nice. I don't know yet what will come out of that. It would be lovely to see some kind of, I don't know, certificate or qualification or some, something of that ilk coming out of it further down the line. And maybe reflecting on that career pathway support that you've just talked about there with, within that group, what does a governance manager do after they've been a governance manager? Oh, anything and everything. <laughs> no, I don't know is the quick answer to that. Um, but it is what I do know is it's a really good foundation and experience for lots of different paths in HE and beyond. Absolutely nothing you learn would be redundant in another industry or another job because it, fundamentally it's about solid performance and putting structures and processes and frameworks around institutions to help them get there. Um, it gives you, you know, back to those project and people management skills, you'll develop those as well as, as needing them in the first place. And it's beyond just that line management type structure. It's influencing, it's negotiating, and you're exposed to and working with the most senior people in the organisations. I think you can go in many different directions within professional services in, uh, in AHE, but also within and beyond the sector. Or Yeah, it's back to those transferable skills and what you learn from the challenges you face on a weekly or daily basis, step back from those, think about the narrative, how, you know, how did you get through what you got through, um, and tell that story well. And I think you can pretty much do anything you want to do. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> Alison, it's been really interesting finding out more about what you do in governance and finding out about more about you as well. Thank you so much for letting me shadow you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Job Shadowing HE. The podcast was written and presented by Susanna Marsden. Audio production and theme music was by me, Rodri Marsden. More information about this podcast and previous episodes can be found at jobshadowinghe.podbean.com.